Hi there, it's Phil here. We've been talking for some time now about the notion of a new social contract for education. Santiago Rincon Gallardo is just the sort of person for us to be having that conversation with about what it might mean in the new world environment to think about the relationship between people, place, purpose and practice. He's got an awesome CV and most of all, he's a top bloke. I can't wait to talk to him. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano, of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Good morning, Santiago. How are you doing? Doing very well, Phil. Good morning. Great to be here. Now, you're speaking to me from um, from Toronto today. What's the temperature like outside, mate? It is getting better. It's getting sunnier. We've been having some very cold days. Um, it's getting sunnier. The ice is melting. Life looks better. <laughs> days always look better when the, when the sun's around the corner and oh, the ice is melting, isn't it? Santiago, I wonder if you might be able to share for our listeners just a, a little bit about your background, a little bit about your story, and then I might sort of explain to the our listeners, what we're planning to do in this special series. Sure. So I, I'm a mathematician by formation. I did that in my university years. I am from Mexico originally, although I've been living in the city of Toronto in Canada for the past 10 years. I have been very lucky to have exposure and be able to participate in a wide diversity of efforts to improve teaching and learning or transform teaching and learning at a very large scale. Um, when, I, you know, in my early years, early career years in Mexico, I spent uh, uh, some good time working with, uh, with an amazing team led by a man called Gabriel Camara. Uh, he's my lifelong mentor uh, in developing alternative models for education, especially for the most remote communities across Mexico. And uh, we developed a very grassrootsy kind of bottom-up uh, innovation that uh, over the period of over about 10 years ended up spreading to over 9,000 schools all over the country, uh, just transforming in very, very fundamental ways, um, teaching and learning in, uh, in the most rem remote communities in, in Mexico. So that's part of my background, the organizing, the grassroots change and, lead and leadership kind of work in Mexico, in the global south. When I finished my doctorate uh, in education uh, leadership at, and the instructional practice at Harvard, uh, which happened about 15 years ago or so, sorry, 10 years ago, I moved to Toronto. Uh, I had met my wife in 2000 uh, when we were doing our master's back then at Harvard and uh, decided to move to Toronto. Here in Toronto, uh, when I was looking for a job, we were about to have our, our first baby. I got to connect and meet Michael Fullen. And uh, for the past seven years or so, I've been working with him on whole system, whole system change. I have been partnering with him uh, to support systems such as California and Ontario, Alberta, to develop and to refine strategy to improve teaching and learning on a large scale. So that's given me another set of lens and another way to think about and promote change more from the top from, from the top of the educational system. So, you know, and, and in the in North America, in the developed world. Uh, so it's been a good combination, I believe, a good powerful combination of experiences to uh, start to get a sense of what can work, you know, how do you combine what the, the best we know about grassroots innovation and, and, uh, uh, and movement building and uh, systems change. So there's, a, there's an amazing combination there in your career, really, between the academic 
and the practical between the, the hallowed halls of Harvard and villages in Mexico, um, between the personal and the professional, and in particular, the grassroots and the systems level. And, and, and I'm wondering whether in this special series of the game changes, whether we could look at that notion of how you make change happen and why we should make change happen and consider that both in terms of grassroots and systems. I, I, I have to put my cards on the table and say, I'm really skeptical about systems. I think that six, yep. systems yep. can put you in a room, but yep. the only the thing that makes change happen is people and the interactions yep. with people. It's, it's the thousands of little micro skills and exchanges and interactions and, and if you like, exchange of value and values between yep. individuals that makes change really happen because at the end of the day, what it is that we do to move forward requires us to give up that which we have right now. And it asks us to contemplate that the past, while it might be honourable to us, is no longer appropriate for what it is that we do. And that's really hard stuff to do. And I think that can only be done, I guess, like we're doing now, like having like talking, it's, it's interaction that does it. However, I, I am open-minded and I would love to be convinced by you that there's a role for systems to play in this too. When we talked the other day, when we were thinking about how we might frame this conversation, it became very clear that there are three really strong philosophies that are driving your sense of practice. And I wonder whether the three episodes in this special series might follow that. We're going to start with the first one shortly, and that's the notion that learning is a practice of freedom. And then a second episode, we're going to look at educational change is a social movement. And then thirdly, we're going to look at what the Global South teaches us about radical innovation in education so if, you, if you're happy to go along for the ride do you want to start digging into that notion of, of learning as a practice of freedom what does that mean well you know it is i think it's a good segue into into the overall topic of the part of this podcast of game changers um for uh, let me start by placing the discussion and the moment we're in we're in deep crisis. We're in massive global crisis, a crisis of a, of a scale and a depth that, that none of us knew about, that none of us was ready for, even though there were lots of warning signs. A crisis by its definition is a moment where the old system is dead and the new system is not yet born. In the Chinese language, uh, the term Weiji for, for crisis is composed of two symbols. One is danger and Ji is multiple possibilities. So these are very dangerous times. I, I, I would even you know, go as far as to say that in this crisis, the human project is at stake. We had been running uh, our societies and our economies and our political systems in ways that had become increasingly dehumanizing. And we had been reaching levels of dehumanization that were very scary, very troubling. And uh, we're, in, we're in crisis after all the ways we ended up organizing our relationship with our environment, our relationships as societies in between nations, etc., just are collapsing. And um, the thing with crisis is that there's nothing to guarantee that the new system will be better in any way than the previous one. And if we think that, if we, if we come to, back to the idea that the hum, human project is at stake right now, uh, I think it's very important that we uh, put the human project front and center 
of our work, in particular of our, of our work in education. Now, <clears throat> education as we know it, or schooling as we know it, that's, that's the game that we need to change. And the new game is learning, not schooling. Those are two very different things. Schooling was created as an institution that has for over hundred years served three very clear purposes. The first one is custody. It's an institution that takes care of our children while parents are working. That's the preferred solution across the globe. This is the way in which across the globe, sorry, this is the way that we have organized our societies to take care of our children while, while we adults are working. Yeah, that's, that's right. And it's, and it's only when we made the decision that there was such a thing as childhood and adolescence and therefore that we didn't want children working in factories. We had to do something that's with right. them. And, that, and, and right. hence, that almost creates public education, doesn't it? So it arises out of a change in the social contract which says right. that there is something valuable about childhood and that we need an institution in which we can capture what it is we think that childhood should be about but it's always been about preparation for adulthood that's right and uh, very importantly preparation for the workforce compulsory schooling as we know it was invented in the times of the the rise of the industrial revolution when uh, these massive waves of immigration were coming into the cities uh, from, from the countryside uh, looking for jobs in the new factories. Before that, kids could hang out with their parents and they helped in the house, they helped in the family, not family business, but in the, in the you know, harvesting, uh, planting, all those kind of things. And uh, before the Industrial Revolution, that was easy, that was safe, that was good, it was healthy. With the arrival of the new massive factories, it was no longer safe to bring kids to factories. It was no longer safe. So no, no wonder, <laughs> you know, schooling became a good solution. We needed to have a space that provided custody to our children. Up to now, that's such a crucial function of schools. Ask any of us with young children right now <laughs> whether we consider schools important. Absolutely, you know, absolutely. We're, yeah, we're yeah. Go, just going crazy because we don't have a place in lockdown. We don't have a place to send our kids, and we're we're driving ourselves crazy, aren't we? Exactly. So, custody is the first. That's the absolutely. first thing that schooling what? was designed to do. What? And I'll the talk about two, two others. Yeah. Yes. The yes. second yes. one is control. It is a mechanism of social control for two reasons. Put a bunch of kids in the same space for a long period of time, and the first instinct that we all kind of come up for the adults in that place will be fear. It will be fear of kids running out of control. So once you have all the kids in the same place, you almost by survival, you know, by instinct, need to have a mechanism of control. Also in the larger picture of industrial societies, of the newly industrial societies, uh, the new the emerging uh, cities needed a mechanism of social control that could prevent the chaos that could erupt from waves of immigration coming into the, into the cities uh, uh, in ways that the, the, the new cities were not necessarily very well prepared. And schooling, again, provided a good solution to the problem of control. That's the second basic function of schooling. Uh, the third one is sorting, distribution of merit. So schooling became the mechanism through which you would rate your students according to certain criteria, usually horribly arbitrary criteria, to determine who would have access to what kind of opportunities, right? 
that's what schooling was designed to do. You may find in, you know, in foundational documents, all those kind of things, nice ideas, nice romantic ideas about learning and why we, you know, schools will prepare our kids for the future, etc. But when you look at what schools actually do and how they work, they are perfectly designed to do these three things, provide custody, control our younger people, and sorting them. Just thinking, just reflecting on those for a moment before we jump into this whole question of learning. Hearing you say that, of course, it's no surprise, therefore, in, in the great state of New South Wales and Australia, where I come from, you know, our original public schools were built by the same people who built prisons. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. you know, and if we're thinking about custody and control, you know, the, the architecture of space becomes very important. I think it goes a step further than that, which is that so many of the people who are drawn into our profession who do that thing, which most adults won't do, and that spend all day with kids looking after them. So fantastic. Lots of them, though, are really caught up on this issue of control, aren't they? And so yeah. when we start to talk about learning and we start to talk about student voice and agency yeah. and so on, we're, we're really threatening people's sense of identity there when we, when yeah. we ask them to let go control and put the learner to the front. We, you know, Ricardo, yeah. we've, been, we've been talking about student-centred learning since I was in primary school back in the... Yeah. It was, it's either the 1870s or the 1970s when I was at primary school, depending on how old I'm feeling. But it's a long, yeah. it, you know, it's, it's, it's 40 years that we've been yep. talking about that sort of thing. And we still don't do student-centered learning. We talk about it, That's right. but, we, That's but right. we don't do it. And in terms of that notion of the distribution of merit, it's, I think this is the thing that worries me the most. I mean, I, I can come at the custody piece. I can come at the notion that we need some form of structure about where and how people spend their time and the purpose of that. Yeah. But I think in a contemporary sense, that needs to be negotiated. I think that that can't be imposed. Yeah. But yeah. the third one, yeah. which is this notion that we will use school to determine those children who will have more opportunities to thrive and succeed and to prosper and to make money and to live a good life than others, I think that's immoral. I think, I think that's absolutely untenable in this day and age that we have schooling that says, you kids, you're going to do better than these kids because we've sorted you into this pathway and with these opportunities. Yeah, yeah no, I agree. Uh, I think there's a lot that we need. The new social contract needs to look at these three functions and decide whether any of them or all of them or some of them are still relevant. Mm. Sorting, of course, is the first one that I believe is the best candidate to go. Yes, obviously. <laughs> and I believe, and I believe control as well. Uh, the thing is, the whole structure and culture and institution of schooling is built on the adults' desire to control the kids. Just to, to it's it's based on fear of kids running out of control. The problem, though, I mean, and, and I can understand it. I have only two children, two boys. And when I'm alone with them, when I'm just, when I'm the single, you know, the, the only parent looking after them, that's all I can do. That's of all course. I can do, right? And, and if at the end of the day, the kids are alive and, you know, their body parts are what they're supposed to be, I believe I was a huge success. Absolutely. And that's two kids, right? Ab so, absolutely. So and I had three, mate. I had three. So <laughs> I, right. I was prepared to surrender a few body parts along the way, really. <laughs> that's right. As, lo as long as it's only with one, maybe, you know, that's, that's exactly. just about exactly. But the thing is, I understand the impulse uh, to control. And I know why uh, teachers feel the survival. It's, it's a survival need uh, to make sure that the kids are, are well taken care of. The problem and that, that they don't, 
you know, hurt each other, that they don't hurt the adults in the room, all those kind of things that they're safe because teachers come to the profession also uh, usually with a very strong moral purpose. Uh, they want to change and improve the lives of these kids. The problem though, is that these three functions, custody, control, sorting, especially control and sorting are counterproductive for learning. They hinder learning. They crush the opportunities for good, powerful learning. In school, if I were to say just very briefly, we learn to be taught. That's the core lesson we gain in school. We learn to be taught. And, and you, can, you, learn can to... you can tell that now when you walk into any high school, yeah. when, when as soon as the kids are turning probably about 15 or 16, probably about, at about age 16, and they've got one or two or three years to go, they've got a big set of exams, and you walk into the classroom, the curiosity has gone. Oh, it's at gone. that point. It's gone. There's, yep. there's, there's hard work and there's interest and there's certainly self-interest, but they're like, they're like little birds in the nest with their mouths open, waiting for yep. the mama bird to come and feed them or the daddy That's bird right. to come and feed them. And, and their agency has disappeared, hasn't it? They're, they're, or or if, it, if it hasn't been, if it hasn't disappeared, certainly their initiative has. It's, it's about your job is to feed me that which I need yeah. to pass yeah. the tests, which allows me That's to go right. on and pass another test. It's that hamster wheel, isn't it? It's just that ever, right. we keep doing the thing to do the thing. Yeah, kids buy into it as well, especially high-performing kids. They get, a, they get accustomed to being told what to do so they can then get the, the best possible grades, right? And that's those students who do well in the test, all those kind of things. Um, the problem is that that's disabling them from uh, becoming good learners. And becoming a good learner is fundamental now. It's a survival it's a matter of survival for our and race, for that's a, human that, race. That's it. And, and, and look, we, we, we know that when we pass students through the sort of early learning in primary and secondary, those who get into tertiary, and by definition, those who get into tertiary because yep. of our sort of sorting system, they're the best in the, they're, you know, they're, they're the best at managing the system. And so therefore, yes. a large number of them are the best and brightest. Let's assume some fall out along the way, but a large number of them. In my country, we have one in four students who don't go on to complete their first year of university study. So that's yeah, 25%. That's right. 25% of those privileged enough, yeah. Of those who uh, went through who, the filter already. Who don't know how to learn by themselves yeah. enough to stick yeah. at what they're doing. Now, it could be also that we're asking them to make silly choices about what they think they're going to do for the rest of their lives at the age of 17, which is, of course, crazy. But, none, yeah. but nonetheless, if we have a schooling yeah. system where one in four um, undergraduates um, doesn't complete their first year of study that's yeah we're not doing learning yeah. are we we're not really doing learning that's right that's right and uh, what's interesting is that schooling is not only hurting and harming our kids who are not doing well in school and it can hurt them in very deep ways the sense of confidence the sense of worth that you gain from being comp and systematically uh told that you're not good enough, that you're not smart enough, that you're not good for math, that you cannot really read, that you should not, all those kind of things really hurt our kids. But not only the kids who are not doing well in school, also those who do well in school. Let me just share very quickly a personal story. I, I was a high achiever for my whole life in school, high achiever. 
best grades in my group. I represented my school in multiple academic competitions. Um, uh, you know, I, I would carry the flag in Mexico, you know, in the uh, civic ceremonies. I would carry the flag representing my school, my, my, my cohort. Uh, I was seen as an exemplary student consider an exemplary student, kind of the kind of students that all, all other kids should try to emulate. I left high school, yes, with great grades. I went to the university of my choice. I left high school not knowing how to learn my own. And I think that's the story of many. The thing is con conventional schooling, compulsory schooling, um, not on, harms everybody, not only those who are not doing well, but also those who do, who do well. Because again, they do, they, they're good at compliance. They're good at, at doing what to, uh, at, at being told what to do. And yet, the, um, and, yet and, and yet, the world that we live in today, the young people that's no longer run, yeah. Uh, they they are walking into a world. There are no jobs. There are only gigs. They're all short term. And when they work, work walk in there, bosses like you and me are going to turn around to them and go, "Quick, look! I, I think the project's something like this. Just dig in there and see what you can do and make it happen." And and. And suddenly we've got all these kids who have been trained to do exactly what they're told down to the nth degree where we yep. have crushed the spirit and the initiative out of them by the sort of the tyranny yep. of the assessment rubric where we yep. drill them and skill them in every little tiny piece of it and then walk them into an environment where we say, where we say so the first thing we want you to do is define the problem and then we want you to think about what some potential solutions might be and then come yep. back to us and and yeah, we think we think that's it. And and if if that's good, we'll give you another three months. Yeah. And it, it, you know yep. what I mean? And it's it's it, it yep. doesn't work, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't work for the new workplace. It doesn't work for democracies. And I think that's another thing that we need to keep in in our minds oh. and our hearts. And and, and, and um, that, I think that point about democracy, we're going to look at in the second episode. Really, we will. We'll we will now. Democracy and advocacy and all all that good type that's stuff. That's right. That's right. Now let me go just to the to the positive side and the optimist side of things. Okay, that's good. That's good. Our kids are phenomenal learners. They learn one, they learn to speak, they learn to talk without ever being taught how to talk. They learn to walk, they learn to ride bicycles. They can learn two, three languages if they're exposed to those languages uh, at home or in their, in their communities. Without going to school, uh, a, a critic of schooling of the 70s, John Holt used to say, you know, if, if schools were charged with uh, teaching kids to talk, the world will be a world of mute people and stutterers, right? Uh, kids are phenomenal learners. They're curious by nature they can learn whatever they set themselves to learn. And they're curious. You know, there's these Torrance tests for creative thinking that has been tracking down creative thinking in different generations and, and, and in kids along, tracking them down along the years. At age two, 98% of kids are creative geniuses. 98% of two-year-olds are qualify as creative geniuses. By the time they're 20, what would be your guess about how many qualify as creative geniuses? Oh, I'm going to take a guess and say whatever number I give you is not going to be enough. I would say you'd possibly be looking at one or two percent, but maybe. Yeah, it's you were. Yeah, you were a little bit more more pessimistic. It's three percent. Okay. Um, but but still, I mean, it is uh, it is crazy. 
it is crazy what uh, my very dear mentor who actually passed past two weeks ago, two weeks ago Richard Elmore uh, used to say if, if there's one thing we have learned about school is that it is possible to kill the creativity and the imagination of our children that we can do it <laughs> the thing is they're phenomenal learners and when provided with the right conditions to learn they do amazing stuff they do amazing stuff they just blow our minds they do look at the kids in parkland in florida uh, uh, who started to organize around right Extraordinary. I looked at looked at uh, Greta, Thun uh, Greta uh, Thunberg. Thunberg. Yeah, yeah. Thunberg. That's right. Uh, with the climate strike, look at what they're able to do and to change when the conditions are right. Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for Wellness in Schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. In the times when it was possible to do big gatherings and speak to hundreds of people, I used to run this very simple exercise, which was asking people to think about something they knew how to do very well and to think about how they learn it. And, uh, you know, regardless whether it's cooking or uh, playing an instrument or uh, doing a sport or uh, singing or telling good jokes or making friends or whatever, regardless of what it is, there are uh, very similar basic conditions that enable people to learn those things they know how to do very well. I summarize them in six, in six conditions. Interest, you learn what you're interested in, in, in learning. Otherwise, I mean, you can pass a test, all those kind of things, but it won't stick with you. You will forget about it the, the minute you finish the test. It has to be something that you want to learn. You need, and most of the people I, 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 I've been kind of doing this exercise with, agree that it's helpful for them to have exposure to the masterful practice of what they want to learn. If you wanted to learn how to play soccer, to see a masterful, you know, a very good soccer player in action. If you want to learn carpentry, seeing a master carpenter in action. If you want to learn to cook, seeing how a good cook prepares the meals and, and plans them, and, you know, all those kind of things. So exposure, that's the second condition. You need practice, as you were saying, to learn some, you need to do the things over and over again, make a lot of mistakes. So you also need feedback. That would be kind of the four condition. So practice over and over again, feedback, reflection, just a moment to think about, you know, what's working, what isn't, all those kind of things. And sometimes it helps, often it helps to learn this alongside others, collaboration, this is true across the board, no matter what it is that you learn, what you need to learn. When I ask people to think about the things they, they, they know how to do very well and how they learn them, you see big smiles in their faces. You see their hearts warming. You see them sharing this with others with so, so much pride. And I do believe it is because it's experiences of freedom. You learn well when you feel free to make mistakes to feel when you don't feel judged about whether you're doing things right or not, where you feel you are free to make mistakes and to learn from them. And you're not judged for that. Do you know, Santiago, one of the wonderful privileges of the last few years that I've, I've got to know and, and, and do some work with one of our very great Australian sports uh, people, a, a guy called Mal Meninga, who you won't know, but, but, Australians on the East Coast will know of Mal, and he's he's very very big on that. He's 
he, you know, he's he's probably our leading coach in in the code of football rugby league. He was an, yeah. an amazing player. He's a he's a he's a great leader and a wonderful judge of people. Has incredibly high standards, but he's very big on that notion that if mm-hmm. you take mm-hmm. you have to take the pressure off people so that yeah. they can learn because if they yeah. if they're conscious they're constantly worried about the mistakes that yeah. they're making, they can never learn. Yeah. And isn't that the most important thing we learn in school? We learn to fear failure. Mm. We learn not to make mistakes uh, because that's judged. That's seen as weakness. That's seen as dumbness. We learn to stay safe. And to stay safe means just doing as I'm told, doing exactly as I'm told, not taking any kind of risk because then I'm going to be judged. I will get a bad grade. I will be stigmatized as someone who doesn't know. Learning needs failure. You need to make mistakes to learn. You need to fall off the bike to learn to ride a bike. You need to fall on the ice to learn to skate, to ice skate. You need to, you need to mess up the food to learn to cook. You need to fail to learn. Uh, and you need the freedom to do it. You need to feel safe to do it. And that's one of the first things that schools take away from us. The good news though, And again, coming back to the good news, when you look at the examples of phenomenal schools um, in the North and in the Global South as well, that are starting to do the work of liberating learning, of bringing learning to life, of putting learning at the core of what they do, what teachers discover first is that kids are way more talented than they look in the classroom, (laughs) that they have way more initiative when they're allowed some freedom to determine what they want to do and how, and in what time, how long, how long they're gonna invest in, in their projects. And one of the first things that most teachers in these exceptional schools will tell you is that there are no problems of discipline anymore. Kids learn how to regulate themselves when they're engaged in things that are engaging for them, that they have a role in, in, in choosing, in in designing, all those kind of things. The thing is, you cannot learn freedom by being told what to do all the time, right? Yeah, you, gotta you, work it. you, have, to work, you have to work it out yourself along the way. That, that's right. And that's that, that's that notion of the learning pit too, isn't it? That, that when you come yeah. across something new, it's, it's, I, I sometimes think that the, the hardest thing for us teachers to overcome is the sort of Piaget developmental steps that we all learned yeah. as young teachers, because it's not actually the way people learn. The way people yeah. learn is they fall into a pit. And although there are yeah. people around the edge of the pit who can give advice around it, you are the only one who can work out how to get out of that pit. And when yeah. you learn it, that's a tool you've got for life. And that's yeah. that, that's the self-regulation piece that you're talking about. We would call that, you know, that's the adaptive expertise where yeah. you, and, yeah. and, and the self-efficacy that gives you the capacity to keep moving on there. But That's right. But you know, if you're if you're in an environment of if you're in an environment where you're feeling uh, fearing failure and risk and 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 you're feeling judged and all of those yeah. sorts of things, um, yeah. you know, if you're if you're in an environment which has got the architecture of oppression in it, yeah. then yeah. you're never going to be able to take that yeah. lesson for yourself. And let me just say, that's not only bad for learning; it is bad for well-being, for health. Oh, it's bad for everything. Now we know we know now that boredom. In states of boredom, when you're bored, but have to be alert to your outside environment, our brains and our bodies 
react the same way as we react to stress. That's just not healthy, is it? It isn't. And boredom is almost a defining feature of schooling, especially as kids go kind of further along in their journey through the school. It is boredom. It is boring. And, uh, and uh, you know, I think, I think up to now, we have just said, okay, yeah, no, everybody has to go through it. You just get over it. But I don't think we're realizing how harmful it is for the health of our children to keep them in, a, in an environment of continuous systematic boredom. It's like keeping them in conditions of chronic stress. Yeah, and it's, um, it's, 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 it's funny though, isn't it? Because on one level, I mean, there's a willful blindness about this sort of stuff. And we human beings are very good at willful blindness. You know, I, I have to say, I was, I was having a conversation with it having a conversation with a school at the moment that needs to make some very big decisions about its future and the amount of willful blindness like you throw the the numbers up in front of them and say look you need to think about doing things differently and they attack the numbers they attack me they just anything but actually looking at it going gee we really need to do something different like the, the boredom thing is it's so obvious for all of us like no one enjoys being bored and yet then That's we turn right. and then we turn around and we go wonder why these kids aren't responding. wonder why these kids have no initiative. Why don't they take responsibility yeah. for their learning? That's, That's right. what teacher talk. Um, That's right. Tiago, what I've been hearing us talk about or we're being led in a conversation by you about so elegantly and, and simply as well too. And, and, and Sandy, I love the fact you don't use any teacher jargon whatsoever in the way you talk. That's just beautiful. So anybody can understand it. What I'm hearing from you is the way in which without this, this, uh, this approach, which is about using uh, education as a means to liberate, to free people, um, yeah. to, be, to become the best versions of themselves. Yeah. If it's about control, if it's about custody, if it's about inequitable sorting and distribution, yeah. then automatically we dehumanise. Automatically, That's right. what we're asking people to do is to go against the very essence of what human beings are meant to do. And That's right. no wonder the model of schooling is broken under these circumstances. So uh, yeah, but let me just say, it is broken if we think about it as the model that's supposed to, call to prepare our kids for the future. It is not broken if we think about it as an institution that has been created. And if you look at historical documents of the first examples of compulsory schooling, you will see that the, it was as the first two systems of compulsory schooling were in the 18th century, the, the mid 18th century, uh, created by authoritarian regimes, Frederick the Great in Prussia and Maria Teresa of Vienna. They designed compulsory schooling as a means to, to, to cultivate a predictive, obedient, submissive population. That's it. So I, I prefer not to have that kind of conspiracy kind yeah, we, of mindset. Yeah, we, we, don't, we, don't want that. we don't want that in our world now. That's right, that's right. Okay, okay, that's right. But just, uh, just, just to say, it is broken for the purpose of learning, but it may be working very well for the purposes that it was designed, which is not learning. It is control, it is sorting, it is custody. Uh, uh, now, yes, the thing is, right now, as I was saying, the project that's at stake is a human project. And we need to decide. We, don't, we have arrived to levels of dehumanization that are horrific. Horrific. Look at, look, look at the country south of where we are living, Canada. It is crazy. 
the degree of disinformation, the degree of disintegration of institutions, of the respect for law, of truth, and uh, you know, respect for evidence. All those kind of things can work and benefit some when you have a population that's submissive, controlled, you know, uh, predicted, predicted, uh, predictable, all those kind of things. So in a way, you could say that it works, but not for the purposes of building a more um, humane world. When we think about education, and I think these types of crisis really forces us to think about what are we educating for? We need to start to be more explicit about it. And uh, in my, you know, in my recent writing, I'm proposing four things. I want an education for my kids and for all kids in the world that prepares them to know themselves, to think and learn by themselves, to live with others and to better the world. And I think if you look at the education plans, you know, the, the, the visions for education systems, all those kind of things, this is gonna be consistent with what we say we want to do, what we believe education has to be for. The problem is that what we're doing with schooling is detrimental to each of these four <laughs> purposes. Yeah, and look, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and look, we would agree with you again, our research that we've, we've done around the globe over the last 10 years, you know, we, we would argue that the, the, the reason why we should be doing school is to grow the whole person. That's and right. That there, and that there's a pathway to excellence, a natural developmental journey, which, you know, four questions with four answers. Who am I? Where do I fit in? How do I best serve others? And whose that's am right. I? And that's, and, that's, and that's all about self-awareness. It's about relationship. It's yeah. about service and it's about vocation. So I'm really that's glad right. I'm really glad to see that your research and our research is, is converging. Santiago, um, this has been an awesome first conversation. I think we're at the point where we can pause at this point and, yeah. and reflect on what we've covered so far, um, thinking about that, that very, very important provocation that we, we need to rethink uh, learning as a practice of freedom. Uh, and we're gonna, we're gonna come back and talk about education or change as a social movement next week. Will you join me then? Of course, I'd be delighted. Wonderful, thanks very much, Santiago Rincon Gallardo. Thanks very much, Game Changers. We'll see you next week. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by our School for Tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.